uh, part of our series on a peacemaking church. So last week, and this week will be in Ephesians 4, we're covering 16 verses, and we'll be looking up other verses too. So straight up, when we're doing a series that's more topical in orientation, I'm dealing things with things more broadly. So I'm looking at 16 verses out of Ephesians, uh, and then a smattering of other verses elsewhere. So, you know, I can't cover everything that's in every passage, all right? So just so I'm not going as deep as usual into one, all right? So you guys have my, did I have your grace extended this morning, please? <laughs> so... Okay, <laughs> so we will be uh, looking through the second today, or the last week was, do you guys remember what last week, A Peacemaking Church Part 1 talks about real peace is what? Anyone remember? Real peace is founded on Jesus Christ and what he's done. Because remember, when we looked at Romans 5, we looked at another couple passages too. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in Him for salvation and forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, okay, what is your status with God? You're an enemy of, you're at war with God. And, and even if you don't realize it, let's say, well, I don't have a beef with God, if there is a God. But the Bible says God is at war with you. It says that you're under the wrath of God. That's war terminology in Scripture. That's not just in the Old Testament. Everyone says, oh, God, he's a God of war in the Old Testament, not in the New. He is too in the New. So that's, that's the scary part. Why, are we, why is God at war with us, though? Why is, he, is he that mean? What? Okay, so we're rebellious and disobedient against him as what? He's our king and we're shaking our fist at him. That's one image. What's another one? What else is he? Is he just king? He's our judge. He's the holy judge. If he's the perfect creator, the one who's perfectly righteous, if is, he is all so perfect that to be in relationship with him, you can't have any sin. How many of you have sinned at least once? Gosh, in the last two hours. <laughs> I struggle with sin, right? So we're all dust. We are all in trouble. And that's what we talked about last week. That is exactly that scary situation. The Bible's very clear. God is at war with us, but he solved the situation. So he's not just the holy, distant, righteous God who hates mankind. He's the holy, righteous judge who is transcendent. He's holy, 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 but he's not just that. What else is he? He's loving. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's the one who solved our problem for us. He sent his own son. Don't forget that, right? So that's why the first week is so important to understand what is this peace that God promises? What's well, a peace that only makes sense if we recognize without him doing something, I'm in big trouble. All mankind is of all time. So the real peace is found in Christ alone. Christ, Jesus is not one of many options. Jesus himself said it, right? You memorize that verse, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I, the way, the truth, and to make it very clear, he threw in the negative. What else did he say? And no one comes to the Father except through, through me. Jesus made that claim. Peter, in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high court, the high religious court of Israel, said, there's no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. 
That's the claim of Scripture. That's why I teach Scripture. It's not my opinion. It's just that's what he says. But that's why it's so amazing that God would die, send his son to die for us while we were yet sinners. We didn't deserve it. What do we deserve? Hell. We deserve his wrath. But that's why God's grace is so amazing. What does grace mean? Getting something we don't deserve nor earn. The things we do earn, the wages, the earnings, the thing we deserve of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So that, that's, that's Romans 6, 23. I love it. Let's call it one verse evangelism, right? And how many of you know John 3, 16? For God, whoever believes. Okay, good. I heard the rumblings. All right, good. You guys, there's certain verses that, you know, some of them are basic, but you guys understand that the message of salvation is basic. It has to be for a numbskull like me to get it, Right? He doesn't save the high, the mighty, the elite. He saves those who will come to him to ask for repentance of their sins and forgiveness and eternal life. All right? So that's, that's why it's so important to start off this whole, because we're in the middle of this, or just the beginning part of the series. So the first part is real peace can only come from God, and it's found in Jesus Christ in his sacrifice on the cross, stepping in for us. Because we deserve death, he steps in, takes the penalty, we get his righteousness, we get eternal life, we get forgiveness, we become heirs, we become children, we be... Isn't that cool? That's what Ephesians, so it was so cool that he went through Ephesians. All those things in Ephesians 1-3 are true of you and me in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, so that's all set up for what we're going to do today. Real peace, okay, this peacemaking church, part two, real peace testifies... Our peace in the body is a testimony to this world. And so we're going to look at that today. So let's read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and uh, then we'll pray after that. You all ready? Okay, thank you. I, therefore, this is Paul talking to the Christians who live in Ephesus. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He's in prison because he's a Christian, has been witnessing. He's in chains. I, a prisoner, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, plead with you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain what? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints. Who are the saints, folks? You are. I am. If we're a Christian, you are immediately called a saint, not because you are so perfect and done three miracles. 
you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God sets you aside as His. God sets you aside. You have a new standing now. You're set. That's, what, that's what holy means, is be set aside for God's purposes. We are God's people, and He declares us holy, not because we are practically, truly holy from our end of deal. We're holy because He sees who when He looks at us? Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' blood covers our sin. That's why understanding atonement out of the Old Testament has to happen so you can understand. The blood of Jesus covers our sins. When God looks at us, He sees Jesus' blood. He sees holiness, righteousness, and perfection. We're on the other side of that. Since we're in Christ, we are set aside ones. Isn't that cool? So you are saints. I'm a saint. I know. It's, I know. I stop that. But it's true. That's what the Bible says. And that's not, this is not the only place. It says it many places in the New Testament. You don't have to do miracles to become a saint. The God's miracle of saving you is what makes you a saint. So he gave these leaders in the, in the body of, of Christ, in verse 11, to equip the saints. Who are the saints? To do what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who are the ministers of the church? You are. What's my role in the church? I'm an equipper. Who does the work of the ministry? Oh, Minister Chris, Pastor Chris. I am a pastor, but you know who the ministers are? You Christians. That's your role. I'm an equipper. I'm a shepherd of the flock. Doesn't make me better. It's just my role in the church. You are the ministers. So you have to get a clerical collar now and wear it around with that little white. I'm just kidding. But that's, you have to see yourselves differently, folks. You're the ministers. Where am I? There we go. Yeah, verse, yeah, verse 12 still. I've got to get, I'll read the passage and then I'll start preaching. Sorry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the, of, the, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. We have to grow up. We don't want to be children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, we are to grow up in speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. You, I could do 10 passages on this alone. We're going to try to cover it today. <laughs> Surface level, but I hope you get the points. So let's pray and then we'll kick into this. So, God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Jeff and for... Uh, Beeson's just helping lead us this morning and just the songs we sang. You are, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. We bless your holy name. And that's true, God. We, we thank you for all the gifts and greatness and goodness and, and graces you give to us every day. But most of all, in Jesus Christ, our great Savior, our Shepherd, our Lord, our Savior. So, Lord, as we uh, walk through this passage and look at different verses, too, Lord, I pray that you would impress on us 
that which we are supposed to be, that which we are, but God, I, I pray that you'd help us to grow to be more effective saints who represent you to a watching world who longs for peace. But the, peace the only peace that will ever satisfy is the peace that comes from you. And Lord, so I pray that that would be something that just, just that desire grows in us to, to, to be a, a church that, that practices peace amongst each other and, and displays that peace that comes from you to a watching, hurting world. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, and I'm not joking, all right? I want you to turn to Matthew 16. I did this on purpose. I could have gone to another passage, but I had to go here for certain friends of mine. <laughs> I'm looking over there. She holds a cane. <laughs> you got it. Yeah, I know. All our Bible's open to it after three years of the same gospel. So we'll be looking at, at what's called the Great Confession. I want to impress on us, before we start talking about peace, I want, you to, I want you to know something else about who you are, all right? And I didn't see it in that list from Ephesians 1, 3, so I'm going to add to your list, all right? So here we are, Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18. Peter is responding to something Peter, or Jesus is responding to something Peter had just said. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. His name in, in, in the Greek means little stone. And on this rock, and by that way he's using a different word that means huge boulder, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so here's the deal. Jesus... We're, we're, he, he's, he, Jesus throws in some war language here that we don't know, that we don't recognize because we don't live in that context, so I'm here to open it up for you. Jesus, the context of this passage is that Jesus had been in increasing conflict with who in Israel? The religious leaders, right? The Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, they, they hated Jesus. They didn't like what he was saying because he kept outing them as what? Hypocrites, right? False shepherds. So increasing conflict with them, and he's, he's kind of pulled away from the center part of Israel. He's at the very, very top part, uh, the northern part of Israel, and he's in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And when we preached on this path, when I preached on it, I showed you pictures of when I had been there. There's the ruins there. It's an amazing complex. When Jesus asked Peter, well, the other, all the disciples, he says, hey, who do people say that I am? He has this complex literally behind him. Caesarea Philippi was known for this temple complex to all these gods. They had the temple of Caesar there, a huge one. It was, that's why it was called Caesarea Philippi, Caesar. Philippi was after the guy who built it. He was naming it after himself too. So Caesar Philippi kind of thing. Huge temple to Caesar behind him. And then the, the grotto of, of, of all these little other idols and there's niches carved into the cliff. And it's, it's at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon in that area was known as the place where the gods descended. Talking about mythology. So it's a real important place. And out of Mount Hermon, the foot of Mount Hermon, comes the Jordan River. That's the source of the Jordan River. So the geography of, that, of this particular situation is a big deal. But he asked them, hey, here's all the world's religions. Who do people say that I am? And so they said, oh, you're, you're, they, some say you're Jeremiah or Ezekiel or whatever, some prophet or whatever. And then he turns it on and says, okay, who do you say that I am? 
That's the most important question, by the way, folks, of anybody. No matter who, the, who, this, who you are on this planet, the ultimate question that you have to face is who do you say Jesus Christ is? That's the ultimate. That decides eternity. And so he asked the disciples that. And then Peter busts out. He says, you are the, well, before the Son, he says, you are the Christ. Okay, the, why, what is the Christ? That was the Greek word, Christos, but it was for the Hebrew word that meant anointed one, Messiah, Mashiach. You are the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one who has come from the line of David to be the, the deliverer. He, now, Peter didn't understand all that he said, but it says, Jesus says that heaven revealed that to him. So he said more than he understood. How come? Because G- Peter, in a few verses, very soon, he, were, Jesus to, you know, he was going to hinder Jesus from his mission. So what did Jesus tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. So Peter, you know, in a moment of revelation, he didn't say, understand all that he said, but he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jewish mindset, a son has the exact nature, character, authority, and rights as the father. So what he was saying is that not only are you the Messiah, you're also God. And that's where Jesus says, you're exactly right, Peter. Heaven revealed this to you. Matter of fact, this is the confession. That truth is which I'm going to build my church. And by the way, Matthew is the only one of the gospels that uses that word church. He uses it twice, and this is one of them. I will build my church. And then he says the phrase I want us to understand, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's war language. What is a gate used for? In, what was it used for in ancient times? Okay, you had a, a, a city with a wall around it, and the gate was to keep the people out, the enemies out. So is it the gates of heaven or the gates of How do you get to the, it's the gates of hell. Hell was the place of the dead. So how do you get into Hell, when you die. Okay, so let me give you a little bit more of the geography. One of the biggest temples that actually predated the worship of Julius Caesar and all that was this huge cave that's right there. And they built a temple in front of it. It was called the, the Gate uh, of Pan, the Temple of Pan, P-A-N. Matter of fact, the ancient name for this place was Panius. You guys ever heard of Pan? Well, he's the one who has the bottom part goat and top part man plays the flute. Well, he was known as the keeper of the underworld. They talked about that huge cave. It's a huge cave. They would sacrifice, you know, people into it in ancient times. It was, he was the keeper of Pan, and that was the entrance to the underworld. That's when he said, when the gates of hell, he's talking about that. He's using that as an analogy. The gates of hell cannot prevail against what? The church. So who's the attacker? The church! It's not that hell is attacking the church. It's church is attacking hell. How do you get into hell? Hades. You have to die. It's the place, hell, Hades, was known as the place of those unbelievers who died. So who has the message of how you can be freed from the power of death? The church does because we have the message about Jesus Christ. That's how people get to heaven and escape hell. That's what he's saying here. The confession Peter made is that which will save Peter and the disciples and anyone who would believe and you will escape hell. Jesus, when he died, we're going to see that in our passage too. We have the victory language right in the middle of it. 
So I'm using this imagery to kick off this passage. Jesus, when he died, conquered sin, death, and Satan. Satan is not the God of hell, folks. Satan, at the end of time, is going to burn like the rest. He's going to burn the worst, it says. Look at Revelations chapter 20 and 21. He is going to be cast into the lake of fire and burn the worst. He's not fire retardant. I know this is heavy language, but I want us to recognize this. Here's the deal. See, when we become a Christian, we saw that in that card. It's such a cool little card. The first thing people think, when I become a Christian, I become a child of God. Is that true? Absolutely. I become an inheritor. I'm a child of His. I get His inheritance. Absolutely true. What else are you called? Do you have any other titles? What? You're a new creation in Christ. Absolutely. What else? You're more than conquerors. Oh, well, that's actually war language, isn't it? What else are you called? Are we called ambassadors? 2 Corinthians 5 says so. We're official sent ones to bring the message from the king. We're ambassadors. You can just look at different things, but here's the deal. You're also soldiers. The Bible says you and I are soldiers. Now, I'm gonna, I want to go to this real quick because some people, oh, no, we're not fighting people. I'm going to show you we're not fighting people. Our war is against the gates of hell. Who is the God of this world who wants people to die and go to hell? Who is the God of this world during this age? Satan is. Jesus said so. Okay? But you have to know Genesis chapter 3 to know why that, chapters 1 through 3, why he's the God of this world. He's not the God to be worshipped, but he's in charge because Adam and Eve in their sin, rebelling against God, abdicated their rule. They were supposed to be the rulers of earth. Subdue the earth and fill it, have dominion. That's king language. We were supposed to be God's kings on this earth to rule the earth. Okay? We abdicated our rule to who? To Satan because we listened to his counsel and followed his way and we said no to God. That's what Adam and Eve did and because of that we're in trouble. But now things can change. That's what Jesus is announcing here. I know this is a lot of pre. I'm going to run through that, that Ephesians passage because it will make more sense. But do you get that? This is war language. I'm looking at soldiers, but our war is not against people. We're trying to rescue people. They're captives. Ah, that's right out of our passage today. So here we go. Let me just kind of close this up. So clarity, what he's saying. Oh, go backwards. I'll go back one more. So the context, he's saying, who do you say I am? And hey, church, you now have a mission You, the church, have a mission to assault the gates of hell, to assault by telling people how they can be freed. And that's through Jesus Christ. Go to the next one. So, the consequences of Christ's victory. Look at this. This is out of of Ephesians uh, 6, 10 through 18. Okay, he didn't cover this. He was supposed to, Patrick was supposed to cover this passage specifically. He was going to work up to it. And he told, oh, I got all the way through Ephesians. No, he didn't. (laughs) because <laughs> that whole finally is right here. I'm going to tell you about it. I'm not going to tell you about all about it. He has more to say. So finally, be strong in the Lord. This is the end of Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus. Okay? Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. War language. He's using, in these verses, the picture of a Roman soldier. If you were a Jewish Christian and you saw this, you'd be slightly offended because you were, grew up hating the Romans because they had conquered the world, including Israel, and they were oppressive. But Paul says, I want you to think differently here. 
put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. And that's war language. And when you're fighting as a Roman soldier, you would fight in units. They call it the phalanx, okay, or the turtle. Okay, how many of you saw the movie? Don't, it's not a movie that's all biblical and stuff, but how many of you saw the movie 300? Okay, but at one point, the guys went, they all went, Poof, and they went, Poof, and they went down and they made this huge shield, right, with their, with their shields. That they made what's called the turtle. It's a Greek, it was a Greek strategy that the Romans adopted. And when it starts talking about the shield of faith and all that, the picture is, is that they would have a shield that would cover two-thirds of their body, a Roman soldier, and, and they would have a, a short sword for stabbing, a spear too. Usually you lost your spear after the first battle parts, you know, first part of the uh, war. But then when you, when you would go to lunge to stab, your side is exposed. But the Roman soldiers were taught to stand so close to each other that when I went like this, my partner was covering my, my exposed side. So they were always like this. And if there were arrows coming, they'd duck down and they'd all use each other's you know, shields to make, a, to make a roof or whatever you call it, a shield, a big shield. So he's using war language. You're supposed to stand your ground, all right? And look at what's on your feet so you can stand in verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, what? The shoes that you use for warfare is what? The gospel of peace. What a paradox. We're talking about war, but yet peace. So when we fight this war against the spiritual realms, for we do not wrestle against, against what? Flesh and blood, but against rulers. These are all spiritual things. We spent against the, the spiritual forces of weakness arraigned against God and his people. That's our war. And if you're not a Christian, unbelievers are captive to Satan. They're in his camp. This, that's why war language, if we don't understand war language, you're missing a part of who you are. Again, this does not mean we go out and get guns and kill anybody who hates Jesus. <laughs> That's not what this is about. But this is about you knowing who you are in the eyes of God and what you're called to. Doesn't mean you get in arguments and fights and start cussing people out. That's still not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be, and we'll look at that in a second here, but I want you to just recognize that this is a part of your identity. This clarifies your identity. A child, a co-heir but you're also a soldier called to a fight. And fights are not easy. The battle's not short. It's tough. Matter of fact, the, the shoes that the Roman soldiers would wear would have nails. They were leather sandals with nails on the bottom because if you've ever seen pictures of warfare, it gets very muddy. And you're sliding all over the place. But the Roman soldiers had special shoes to stand their ground. Matter of fact, a group of four could hold a piece of land about this Eh, maybe a little bit smaller, against 10 times their number. That's how they were trained, using their sword. They would work in unison. This is a group talk. He's talking to a group of people. You stand together. You stand firm. But your feet are with the gospel of what? Peace. Isn't that weird? But don't forget, the peace we bring, the peace that is going to bring war against hell is the peace that God provides through Jesus Christ. Okay? So there, that's, that's us-them language, okay? I want you to understand, it's, it's warfare language. Now let's, let's hop back into this, all right? Our church is a war machine. 
against the spiritual forces of evil. We bring the message of victory. That's the message we bring, which is the gospel of peace through God, or with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, our church has a mission. We have a war mission. All churches that belong to Jesus Christ do to spread the message of his victory and to bring this hope to the ends of the earth. That's assaulting the gates of hell, bringing the message. But it's not just telling a message, folks. It's living a message. You are called to live the message out in your daily lives, yes, but as a church, we live out the message. It's a verbal message. You have to know the gospel to be saved. But when we're, a, when we're in the church, we display the message. I get that from Philippians. I'm jumping ahead. I'm going I'm to pass up some other verses because I've already gone longer than I was supposed to do on the introduction. Philippians 1, 27 through 29. Paul writing to other Christians in a different city, Philippi. He says, only let your manner of worthy... Of the, uh, be, uh, only let your manner of, uh, of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, he started that church, he wasn't with them, he's writing to them, that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's the same word out of Ephesians, standing firm, war language. Standing firm with one, in one spirit, with one mind, striving. That word striving is actually athletic imagery out of the gym. So he's using war language and athletic imagery to talk about the effort that we need to put out. To stand how? As individuals? No, it's together. This is a unified battle we've been called to. But watch, watch the rest of this. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Will there be, are there opponents to the gospel who are people? Yeah, there are. But do we fight against them? Do we stand strong against their message? And we fight the spiritual forces of evil. Yeah. But here's this. When you do that, church, what is this? Look at the last part. This is a clear sign to them of their, to their destruction. When Christians stand unified for the faith, loving each other, and showing love to their enemies... Not backing off, not denying the faith, but loving them. Jesus says if, an, if, a soul, you know, if someone slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek. If they want you to carry their burden for a mile, carry it too. He says go minister to them. Does it mean you have to back down on your confession? No. Does it mean you just let robbers rob your house because they just, they're just robbers? No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about when you're being persecuted for the faith, you have to remember they're not the enemy you got to love them. You don't back off on your confession. You love them. And you, you tell them about Jesus. There's so many stories you want to just bring up, but I'm going, going to get way too long. But here's this. It's a clear sign of them of their destruction. Oh, my goodness. This Jesus that they're talking about, they're willing to die for? What in the world? And some will be, whoa. And guess what will happen? There's stories all, all throughout history of former oppressors becoming Christians, because of the witness of the martyrs. That word witness, by the way, in the Greek is martyr. It's where we get the word martyr from. Christians were so known for their witness and dying for their witness that that word became known as dying for your faith, dying for your testimony. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and it comes from God. So folks, when we 
understand that we're in a battle. We don't back off. We are standing together. You're not supposed to, you're supposed to stand together with a group, a church, and with other believers. That's why he says in Hebrews 10, 22 through 25, you need to be meeting on Sundays with a church. You have to, so that you can hold, it says that you hold fast to the confession. You won't lose your grip on the confession about Jesus Christ because you have others helping you. How many of you are perfectly uh, following Jesus all the time your whole life? Arthur, put your arm down. (laughs) None of us is. That's why we need other Christians to lift us up sometimes. That's why other, you Christians who are, you're doing well right now, you should be on the lookout for what? Others who are hurting, who are struggling in their faith. Hug them, talk to them. They're mad at you, it's okay, keep loving them. Pick them up, Galatians says, pick them up if they're stuck in sin. Confront them about their sin, but keep loving them. Walk with them, keep coming after them if they push you away. away. Restore them, help them be restored to God. That's our calling. Because we're in a war, folks, and people get wounded. Soldiers get wounded. Who, who helps them get better? God, but He uses His people. I haven't even got to Ephesians yet. This is so good. But do, okay, let me just go back to the title of my sermon. Real peace does what? Testifies. Do you understand how what we've been talking about, how a church that's actually practicing unity and peace and love and caring for each other, not giving up on each other when we're done, do you see how that would be a testimony to a watching world? Think about it. Think about it. When you weren't a Christian and you had friends, how much could you trust them? Maybe you had a good friend that would be pretty trustworthy, but I tell you what, my experience in in pre-Christ is that my friends were my friends as long as they could get something from me. And quite frankly, I was the same with them. It was all about me. True? You guys understand, the world is longing for a peace where there's real friendship, real Christian friendship. Because it's not based on how good I am, it's based on the God who saved me. He gives me the spirit who enables me to be a better friend. Now, will there be conflict in the church where we blow it with each other? Well, yes. I'm not saying we're perfect here, okay? But you have to understand that we have something different that the world is longing for. I was talking to a kid this week. Uh, he's 19, and he's, he's just hurting. Just hurting. Not a Christian, but he wanted to meet with me anyways because I knew him when he was younger and and I just kept telling him, he says, hey, you know, I will meet with you anytime just to talk and stuff. But you understand, the thing you're searching for peace through are never going to give it to you. Never. How do I know? I went that route. <laughs> and I said, God had to wake me up. And oh, my goodness. Thank you, Lord, for doing that to me. He needs peace. And he's tried drugs. He's tried alcohol. He's tried you know, therapist. He's tried pursuing the adrenaline rushes. He's, he's, he went through the list of things. He's almost killed himself several times because he doesn't know the peace that only comes from God because he's at war with God. He is. That's the key ingredient. So, uh, you guys, what we're talking about here is something the world is missing because it can only be found in Jesus Christ. All right. So I'm not going to follow my notes. You guys aren't going to be able to fill in your blanks. I'm just going to talk about generally the passage. So the first part of the passage, verses 1 through 3, okay? Now take this imagery, the church God has called us into, because we are. If you're a Christian, you're a part of the church. That's what you are, okay? You've been called into an army, a unified army, okay? 
and the church to be considered faithful is to be a unified church. See, here's the deal. What does it say about the unity in verse 3? I'm going to just let you guys look at your Bibles. What does it say about that unity? Okay, so it's a spirit-induced unity. Is it something it says, and, huh? Okay, it's, in the, it's a unity of the body, or the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, okay? But it, how, what are you supposed to work at? What does it say just before that? What? Read it. Make all diligence to maintain, working hard to maintain the unity of the body, or the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here's the deal, folks. We are united. When you're a Christian, you are united to the body. We don't have to make unity happen. It already is. But he says we have to work hard to maintain the unity. So in practical terms, the hard part that we have to work at is staying unified. Do you get that? So look at the characteristics of how unity happens. Walk in a manner worthy to the calling which you have been called with what characteristic first? What's the first one? Verse 2. Humility. I'm no better than you. None of us is better than anyone else. Right? That's what the Bible says. And gentleness. What does gentleness mean? Does it mean softness? Does it mean... No. It means power under control. The Greek word was used of the bit in a horse's mouth. And with that little bit, you could direct this powerful animal. And it was tame and useful now. Ah, that's what gentleness means. So when you're talking, I'm talking to a kid who's six years old. I, could I crush that kid? Yes. But how evil would that be, right? But gentleness, is, it's a picture of, of helping a kid learn something, something basic. But you love them because you want to help them. That's power under control. So that's what needs to happen in the church. Gentleness. Patience. I don't have to describe what that is, do I? How many of you are good at patience? <laughs> All right, none of us is. But that's what has to happen in the church, folks. He's talking to Christians here, by the way. Do we need to be patient with each other? How many of you can change your life quickly from one habit to another? None of you can. I can't. We have to be patient with each other because we're all people in the process of change. A Christian is not perfect. A Christian is someone who's being transformed. And that means there's a lot of ugliness God has to get rid of in each one of us. I'm looking at a lot of ugliness. I don't mean that. You know what I mean by that. Guys, we all struggle with sin. It's real. It's real and it's true. If you're, if you're looking for a perfect pastor in a perfect church, you're in the wrong place. The Bridgemore Park is not that. But we are people who are being made perfect over time. But that, when will that end? Yeah, it's when we die. <laughs> That's when we get the perfection, right? So we're in it for the long haul. With patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing up means you put up with each other's quirks, weirdness, even sins. It's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. That has to work here. Because you know what? I'm going to blow it with you. I'm going to say something that offends you. Why? I breathe. You're going to say something that bums me out. Why? You breathe. <laughs> That's endemic to human. We're going to have conflict. But it says here, you know what? We need to be bearing with one another love. Put up with each other to some degree. 
But it's, but it's how? Because I'm better than you? No, it says in love. Love is action. Love is serving. Love, and yeah, it flows from humility and gentleness. These are the characteristics of a unified army. All right? I'm going to jump down. I know I'm pissing, missing so much stuff here. But we have to understand it's all because we've been unified because of the truth of the gospel. That's C. We're called to stand on the truth. That's where it has all these ones, right? There's one body and one spirit. You know, we're talking about Bethany. They're not another church. They're our brothers and sisters. If there's a church that preaches the gospel and they proclaim Christ, you know what? We're brothers and sisters with them. There's one body, one spirit, just as you're called to one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Each one of these things, I, I, I have to move through it. But you've got to see, that's what unifies us, the truth of the gospel, the God. And by the way, we do not worship the same God as, as Islam. They've changed the meaning of God. They have their own definition. It's not the same God. We do not believe in the same God or Jesus of the Mormons. They've changed those words, who Jesus is. And what a saint is. Please know that. Words are everything. Not the same as the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's why it's so important that you know the truth of what the Bible says. You guys, somebody, you know, get on my case. Oh, you always preach all the Bible. I'm like, yeah, because my opinions suck. I want to tell you what the Bible says. We have a billion voices out there with all with their own opinions. Who's right? I know God's right. And I'm going to teach his revealed word. Okay. So one, we got to stand on the truth. That's our only hope for unity. And then verses 7 through 12, we see that in this victory that Christ has done, that's what the verse is right in the middle. We'll look at that in a second. That he, he's created a church, and then he's given gifts to the church to accomplish its work. And the, the people who are part of his church should be humble and serving soldiers. And continue with the war imagery. Let me read you this verse. But grace was given to each one. So before he's been talking to the body at large, but now he's talking about individual members here. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He gives it out however he wants to give it out. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's right out of Psalms. Oh, I forgot to write down the passage. It's out of Psalms. It's a victory of when David won the battle of Jerusalem. And he, he, became, he owned Jerusalem as the capital now. But Paul's saying, no, this is a picture of what Jesus did when he came to earth and he won the victory and he ascended on high. And it says he led captives and he gave gifts. The captives he, he's leading in his victory march are us. Because before we became a Christian, the picture is that we belong to Satan and we're his slaves, his captives. So when we become a Christian, we become a, and here's the deal, we are now a slave to God. That's Romans chapter 6. I'm not making up this language. You're a slave if you're a Christian, but who's your master? God is. And what kind of master is he? Let's talk about all the blessings you have on that little card. I want to belong to him. I want to be his slave. That's exactly what Paul calls himself. I'm a slave. When it says a servant of Jesus Christ in the letters, that's actually a bad translation. The word is literally slave. We're slaves. So when Jesus, he's leading captives, we're now owned by a new king because he freed us from sin, death, and Satan. And then it says he gave gifts to men. That's a picture of him distributing the winnings of war, the booty. And what he says is that he's given gifts to his church. I'm jumping down to where it says apostles and prophets. So those are the leaders of the first part of the church, the first century. 
Who was the last of the apostles? What's the last book of the Bible? Well, last book of the Bible, book of the Bible. Revelation. Revelation. Who wrote it? John. Okay, some of you already said John. Why don't you all hear it? John was the last one. He was the last of the twelve apostles. There was eleven, and then they had to replace who? Judas. They did it by a vote. They said the the qualifications of someone who had been with the Lord, part of his group, because it wasn't just twelve disciples following Jesus. His whole there was a whole there's hundreds that followed him. But the qualifications, he had to be with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry and had seen him rise from the dead. And that's why they had a replacement. But then there's also one more guy who got the official title apostle. Who was that? Paul. Because Jesus met him on the road. He was, he was a Pharisee who hated the Christians. He's on his way up to Damascus. He was going to go arrest and torture some more Christians. And then Jesus shows up. Knocked him off his horses. You're now one of my apostles. You got a job to do. Get to doing it. So those are the official apostles that Jesus said would build the church. They're the foundation. And then prophets, what were prophets? Those who had revelation from God, they're part of the early church, but they also had to be subject to the apostles. Whatever they said had to be checked first. And, and they, but at some point that ended. When did it end? Who was the last apostle? John. When he died, that ended the apostles and the prophets because now the delivery of Scripture was done, the church was founded, and now you have the second group of two. What are the second group? Evangelists, what do they do? You proclaim the gospel. That's how people become Christians. They've got to hear the evangel, the gospel. That's what evangel means, good news. And then the other ones, that word is actually, it says shepherds and teachers or pastors. Some of your translations say pastors and teachers. That's actually the Greek. Most commentators say that's pastors or shepherds dash teachers. They, it's shepherds who teach. That's what I do. We help run the church by equipping the flock so that the flock is equipped to do what? I called that you earlier, what? To minister, to do the works of the ministry. And what are the works of ministry that we do? Give me some samples. Okay, that's evangelism. I, I just let me, I'm having fun with you, Sue. But you're right. No, so, so we make disciples. That's the work of the ministry to make disciples, and we help the people learn how to tell the good news. And you do do the actual telling. What else? Huh? Okay, I, I equip you, like several of you are teaching the little kids, teaching men's studies, teaching women's studies. What else? Hospitality. That's a ministry of the body. Serving one another in love. Hey, you know, so-and-so needs help moving. Let's go help them. So-and-so is really struggling right now and could use some counseling. Should I do all the counseling in this church? Say no. <laughs> I'm a better teacher than I'm a counselor. I'm looking at the counselors. Mature Christians are supposed to be doing the counseling. All that word means is discipleship. Okay, works of the ministry are you all. And there's all sorts of ways. Some of you are like, ah, I don't really fit into any of the ministries here, but I'd really like to do this. Guess what? Let's help you do it. Let's do it. I love new ideas. As long as you don't think I have to do it, I can't go everywhere. I am married and have kids, right? So the works of the ministry are carried out by the body, but what is the end? What is the goal of this? And that's what the last part out of, for verses, uh, I won't read it because I have to be done. I'm just going to summarize. Verses... 13 through 16, the point is, is that as you work, as you serve, guess what happens to the body? The body's built up. The body's strengthened. 
So if you're sitting here in the church on Sundays, you come and they show up and then you leave, guess what happens to the church? We're weaker because you're not serving. If you just come on Sundays and you show up and that's it, and you never do any of the one another's during the week, you're not serving in some way, guess what happens to the church? It's weaker. That's what he's saying here. Without you, the church is weak. The more of you that are involved in serving, the more that God... See, he he gave each one of you a gift, at least one, to use for the building up of the body. Did you know that? The minute you become a Christian, you have a gift. Who gives it? Not me. The Spirit. And if you're not using it, we're missing out. That's why I keep saying, get stuck in, plugged in somewhere so we can use your gifts. Because the more unified we are, the stronger we are, because what is the imagery? We are what? Are we just the family of God, but we're also called the, the army of God. If the army doesn't have all of its soldiers, some of the soldiers are sitting on the sidelines kind of just looking at their spears and watching what's going on. What's happening in the battle? We're not conquering all the ground we should conquer. Does that make sense? But here's the deal. And I'll close with this. A unified church, a church that's at peace with each other, is one that testifies to the victory of Jesus Christ. This kind of body hears the call of Christ to battle, that displays in their unity the unmistakable mark of the Spirit's work and therefore shines for the Lord. This kind of local church has stepped into the battle, is gaining ground for Christ, is a body working on maintaining the unity they have, working at being more unified, more humble, more serving one another. And when there's conflicts, because they're going to happen, they are hungry, eager to solve the conflicts. I tell that to you guys all during communion. What are you supposed to do if you're at war with somebody in the body and it's communion time? Don't take communion. Stop what you're doing. Tap that person on the shoulder and go outside and say, hey, I'm so, please forgive me. Can we be reconciled? Talk it out. And if the person doesn't want to be reconciled, what's your job? You've done what you need to do. And maybe you should get another person involved to help you. We can talk about that later and all that. But but man, God said that. Jesus said that in in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in the middle of a worship service and you're bringing your gift to the altar, it says, lay it aside if you haven't been reconciled. Go take care of business. Unity in the body, have to work at it. This kind of unity, this kind of peacemaking, this kind of reconciliation and restoration and forgiveness, the world does not know. So let's rock the world. Yes? Now, we have a reputation, you guys, and we do have a reputation as a church that's very loving and warm, but we can get better at it. Can we? I have to get better at it. I'm, I'm your pastor. So let's all do it together, okay? Let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for the, this amazing church family's uh, understanding when I go off, off, <laughs> off the pathway here. But Lord, I thank you for your word and, and for what you've done uh, for us in, you, in your, in your uh, sacrifice for us, Lord Jesus. In your love, you died for us. And, and we could never, ever thank you enough. We could never praise you enough. Words can't describe what you've done for us. And, and, and even, even saying this, we, just about your sacrifice and your love for us, I, can't, I don't even fully the, understand the full grasp of the extent of it yet either. I'm still growing in understanding that. 
So, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Lord, the peace that you've given me, I pray, Lord, that that peace would be pouring out of my life into my relationships. Here in the church, in my, in my marriage with Renee, in, in my relationship to my kiddos, and Lord, to, to the guys that I go surfing with or go mountain biking with or whatever. Lord, for every one of these Christians here, Lord, I pray that we would be just, just overflowing. We'd be bleeding peace, the peace of God in Christ Jesus. So Lord, I just pray that you'd work that in us more and more because we're at war and they need your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.